everybody. Where your treasure is, <clears throat> there your heart will be also. Uh, in our journey through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we've just come through territory in which Jesus spoke about the uh, three main pillars of Jewish piety, giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. And Jesus said some things, didn't he? He said some things about giving to the poor and prayer and fasting. But what we noticed as we went through that territory was that Jesus' principal concern was that we avoid hypocrisy. The hypocrisy of actually living for human approval, public honor, whilst looking like we were trying to live for God's approval, for his glory. And hypocrisy, that's important because hypocrisy was and is um, a serious danger to true discipleship. As Jesus' sermon continues, he will continue to deal with serious dangers, with clear and present threats to serious discipleship. He'll deal with worry, judgmentalism, false prophets, etc., etc. But the serious danger, the clear and present danger that Jesus deals with in today's text is the danger of treasure. Verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Uh, The word uh, treasure conjures up well the idea that Jesus is talking about those possessions that steal our hearts, our precious possessions, or the accumulation of possessions. Jesus' argument about the dangers of treasure comes in three parts. Firstly, earthly treasures are unsafe to store because this world cannot be trusted. Such treasures are inherently transient and temporary. Now, uh, in the ancient world, the super-rich exhibited their vast wealth through textiles and fabrics and clothing. That was uh, amazing because it was wildly out of reach, uh, beyond the reach of the average person. Silk was worth its own weight in gold. And so we we see regularly in the Bible uh, people desiring costly clothing very greatly. It excited such strong, covetous emotions and feelings, and it not infrequently got people into trouble when they saw these amazing fabrics, such as uh, Archon in uh, Joshua chapter 7 and Elisha's servant Gehazi in 2 Kings chapter 5. Um, These fabrics just left people spellbound, and yet such wealth could be, and regularly was, destroyed by moths. Moths, those proverbially little and frail creatures, they could destroy your retirement savings overnight. Well, today we think we might have safer investments, or at least we have the benefit of mothballs. But actually... The point is still solid. There are no markets or commodities or investments that cannot fail. All of them can fail. And even if they don't fail, uh, we can't take such things with us. As uh, Job famously observed, 
Uh, and we began our morning by uh, our first song. We sung Job's words. Um, uh, Job said it, naked I came into this world and naked I will depart. We can't take that stuff with us. The Lord gives and the Lord takes. It is for our safety then. It is for the safety of our hearts that Jesus makes this point without any apology or words of regret that things are just so. In fact, what we hear is that even though Christ's disciples are children of the Most High God, the true heirs of Abraham, Israel in Christ, with God Almighty as their protector and provider, nevertheless, Jesus says clearly here that they are not exempt from burglars, rust, rust, moths, mice, market fluctuations, slumps, and stock market crashes. They're not exempt. If Jesus had been teaching this lesson in Australia, undoubtedly he would have added, and where bushfires turn everything into smoke and ashes. And uh, we, we do. We do, of course, we extend our heartfelt sympathies to everyone on the east coast of Australia who has suffered loss of any kind as a result of the recent bushfires. And we cry with them and we pray for them and we give as much as we're able to. But we also take warning from today's text that if the same things or when the same things happen to us, nothing is happening that Jesus said wouldn't or couldn't happen. Indeed, it would only be right and honest for us to say, nothing has happened except that which you said would happen. Bushfires, after all, are prophetic devices. They show us the future in order that we can understand reality. So that's the first part of Jesus' argument. Warning. The second part of Jesus' argument is a word of great encouragement. Verse 20, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal and where bushfires do not turn everything into smoke and ashes. And this is exceedingly good news. It is possible to have treasure, things we delight in that give us pleasure and that make our hearts sing and to have them eternally, and to have them eternally new, never to break down, tarnish, be stolen, or fray. Um, good treasure. And that's wonderful. That's very exciting. How, how do we get this heavenly treasure? Or more to the point, how do we transfer earthly treasures into heavenly treasures? Well, there's an initial answer that's simple, although it's not supplied by our text. It is supplied by the rest of Scripture, uh, and it's an answer that both the Old and the New Testament supply, so we can be reasonably sure that the disciples already knew this answer as they listened to Jesus on that day. And that answer is this. Uh, in order to make the transfer, we simply spend our treasures on others, lo loving sacrifice for the sake of the needs of others. Um, and in addition uh, to the promise of future reward in one form or another, such transfers enable also something of a software update for our hearts. As we learn to love people and use things, rather than our default setting, the software that we come programmed with, which is usually to love things and to use people. 
So we get this software update as we practice that good practice. Um, But again, we can ask, how do we transfer earthly treasure into heavenly treasure? And there is is another answer, a further answer. It's a little bit more complex. Um, It involves thinking about the fact that we've seen already in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, there have actually been lots and lots of references to God rewarding his faithful children. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit a McHappy meal. No, Uh, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit... Wow! Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Yes! Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. And as we keep reading, we'll find that we'll be rewarded when we love our enemies, rewarded when we pray for those who persecute us, rewarded when we secretly give to the needy, rewarded when we pray in private, rewarded when we fast in disguise. Surely this list is representative rather than comprehensive. Surely there are many things in the Bible that we know that God will reward us when we do these things. God loves to reward his children who do the right things. And amazingly, this is what God does. Amazingly, he saves us. He enables us to do the right thing. He fills us in power with this Holy Spirit. And then when through the strength and power of the Spirit, we do the right thing, he rewards us for it. It is completely and staggeringly unfair. That's the point of grace. And the Bible affirms in various places that whatever this heavenly reward actually is, you know, we speculate, we can imagine, it might be beyond imagination. Um, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined. Whatever the reward is, we know for sure that it will be overwhelmingly worth it. Making all earthly prizes, treasures and awards look tiny, cheap, stupid, ridiculous in comparison, not actually valuable at all. Um, It'll be amazing. Uh, so, So we know that our Father is... That, that our Father is, 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 is delighted to reward us, that, that actually with you know, each, each and every one of us, as we put our trust in Jesus, as we, as we say the Lord's Prayer, as we pray, pray you know, do all kinds of things, that you know, there's this heavenly capital building up and up and up. This, praise God, that's so encouraging. Um, and the more that we discover that we've got an investment, we think, oh, how can I build on that investment? Um, And we might think from the first answer that building up heavenly capital is as simple as getting on with life and occasionally remembering to give gifts to the poor. But but no, the second answer is more complex. It's actually about a whole reorientation of our lives. It's about living a life in which the whole direction is set on Jesus as king and set on his priorities, the kingdom of heaven priorities. It is about a life laid down, surrendered in service to a king who rewards faithfulness with, at the final analysis, literally unimaginable generosity. This is tremendously encouraging. Uh, Store up treasures in heaven. Moth, rust, thieves, it doesn't happen up there. Um, These things are true, um, but actually 
uh, not the primary focus. The main lesson is this. The main lesson, um, before we get carried away about bank accounts and capital and all that kind of stuff, the main lesson is heaven is the only safe place for treasure, and therefore heavenly treasures are the only treasures we are safe to delight in. This is said explicitly, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, now the, the word heart in our culture tends to mean the seat of our emotions, the place where we feel things. The heart, in biblical thought, means our deepest and truest self, the place where the will resides, the place that houses our deepest, innermost, most motivations. Uh, for this reason, the word heart, especially in the Old Testament, can sometimes be better translated as mind. Uh, where, where your treasure is, that's where your mind will be. Um, that's what you'll be thinking about. Wherever it may be that our most precious possessions are, that's the place that occupies our thoughts and dictates our decisions. The danger of earthly treasure is therefore obvious. The danger of earthly treasure is that it will form us as earthly-minded creatures concerned about getting on ahead here. But as followers of Jesus, we can only follow Jesus if we're where he is and thinking his thoughts, if we are kingdom-minded creatures focused on the agenda of heaven the reality of Jesus' kingship and the priorities of his rule. Otherwise, heaven forbid, we'll just end up somewhere different to where Jesus is. And on that day, Jesus will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So Jesus' argument is firstly warning, secondly encouragement. Now we come to the third part of his argument, um, how to apply it. And that's in verses 22 and 23. How do we apply this teaching? Uh, Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness... How great is that darkness? Uh, what Jesus is talking about is actually kind of two things at the same time. He's talking about uh, what we look at and how we look at what we look at. Uh, you see, let's begin by the fact that the ancient world conceives of the eye or eyes as kind of like windows that let in light to the rest of the body, lamps that let in light. Um, so firstly... Uh, Jesus is talking about what we look at, because that's important. In the garden, Eve looked at, that is to say she fixed her gaze upon, she stared at the forbidden fruit, seeing that it was pleasing to the eye and attractive as food and desirable for gaining wisdom. Um, and the, the more she stared at it, the more she wanted it, and she took some and she ate, and she gave some to Adam, who was with her, and he ate. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, our eyes can be a serious trap. 
Um, uh, idols, for example, they were forbidden things, but they were clearly desirable, things people coveted and wanted to own. After all, they were impressive and expensive statues made of gold and silver, of polished wood or um, a polished stone, maybe decorated with, with gems and, and jewelry. They were desirable to own because they were pleasing to the eye. Rachel stole her father's idols when she fled her father's household with Jacob, her husband. And there are myriad other stories in the Old Testament of people stealing idols. Um, We are, or at least I am, uh, like magpies. We we like shiny things. I like shiny things. Um, I, I, I like shiny cars. I always slow down when I see a shiny car. I I like pretty watches. Um, I I like shiny things. Um, Liking shiny things gets people into trouble. Achan, Joshua 7, he was led astray by his eyes, saying in Joshua 7, 21, when I saw the plunder and I saw a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. And seeing the vast wealth that Naaman the Syrian had brought with him, Gehazi reasoned that there'd be no harm in claiming, even if just little by little white lie, just 34 kilograms of silver and two sets of clothing. Surely no one would mind. And, and then... Um, um, I, I reckon it's just beautifully, brilliantly depicted in a work of fiction. Uh, the name of the character is Gollum. He's also known as Smeagol in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Uh, we see ourselves in that character. Um, that's what it means to be consumed by shiny things. Falling in love with the beauty of a beautiful thing, Smeagol immediately falls unwittingly into the crime of covetousness. He doesn't even recognize uh, his greed. He just, he's just consumed by his desire for this thing, which belongs to his friend. But murder happens as a result, after which Smeagol is possessed by his possession. It controls his decisions. Where his treasure was, there his heart was also. My precious, or whatever it is he says, something like that. My precious. And Smeagol becomes the subhuman golem, or to speak more accurately, the sub-hobbit golem. Um, demonized and manifesting all of the traits of demonization. Tormented by shame, guilt, and fear. Filled with anger and hatred and bitterness compulsive and obsessive in his behavior, unable to resist the voice in his head, yet in all of this, totally self-centered. And the outcomes of his choices are entirely biblical. He is forced by his own deformed character to flee society and uh, to leave community and to live by himself alone in darkness under the ground. Owning the ring costs him everything. And it's not even his to keep. Trying to hold on to the ring costs Gollum his life. And the battle for the ring destroys the ring as well as Gollum. Uh, Of of course, this is all fiction, but it's brilliant theology. If the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? 
Jesus is talking about being careful what we gaze on. But he's also being, uh, talking about how we look at things. Because Jesus uses here two phrases that his disciples would have recognized from the Old Testament and from Jewish literature of their time. The phrase in our Pew Bible, if your eyes are healthy, is literally, if your eye is singular. The single eye in Hebrew thought is essentially the same as our figure of speech to be single-minded, to have, to have one focus, not multiple focuses, not to suffer from double vision or double-mindedness. And the connotation attached to, uh, to having the singular eye is actually generosity. That was the association. We know this because of the opposite phrase, which is rendered, if your eyes are unhealthy, but is literally, if your eye is evil. And the evil eye, in Jewish thought, was what we would call the stingy eye, the miserly, uh, um, stingy, greedy person. Um, Returning verse 22, the lamp of the body is the eye, Therefore, if your eye is singular, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is evil, your whole body is dark. Therefore, if the light which is in you is actually darkness, the darkness is very great. So how we look at things, not just what we look at, but how we look at things, really matters. And the lesson, essentially, is this. Greed is absolutely unacceptable. And generosity is absolutely essential. Greed corrupts a person's entire life, disfiguring their humanity monstrously, leading them to hell as a creature of hell. Greed has two facets. On the one hand, it is a grasping for more, for more and for more. It is a desire for what properly doesn't belong to us and indeed belongs to others. It is an insatiable desire for grasping and for more and more, because also, on the other hand, the second aspect, is that greed is a dissatisfaction with what we've got. And it is an, even so, it is an unwillingness to let others have what is actually rightfully ours. So greed includes not letting others have what belongs to us, even when their need is greater than ours, even when we don't need what we have. The greedy person is both dissatisfied with what they've got as well as stingily refusing to part with any of, any of it at all. And the rest of the Bible makes plain that greediness is as bad a sin as any other and that the, the, the greedy, um, they make Paul's list of offenders who will not inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, Greediness corrupts a person's entire life. Generosity, on the other hand, purifies a person's entire life. It opens up the windows and lets the light in, conforming and confirming a person as a son of God, in the likeness of Christ, someone who represents God faithfully because God is generous, fitting them in the process more and more each day for heaven. Generosity is, has two facets. It is a willingness to go without, to forego for the sake of others, as well as a willingness to let go of what 
belongs to us of what uh, one already has. So then, hopefully uh, we, we now have a better understanding of our text. Um, uh, we know what Jesus is saying, but it can still be really hard to apply it, can't it? I mean, um, a, a basic question might be this. Um, does this mean, what this text says today, does it mean that we, as Christians, can't ever own anything nice? Does the fact that I want it make it treasure? And therefore, by definition, something I'm not allowed to have. In order to follow Christ, therefore, I'll own nothing but the essentials, and even then, I'll make sure that they are the cheapest possible brands in order that I don't make the mistake of owning something I actually like. As absurd as these statements might sound, I think we as Christians, we often assume that this is precisely what Jesus is saying, both here and elsewhere. And we struggle and we feel hypocritical or guilty or both if actually we, we, we do buy that watch or dress or that car or get that new kitchen or buy that painting or the shoes and um, the thing that we really, really wanted even though we didn't necessarily really, really need. Um, is, is this the philosophy of, Christ, of Christ? Is this the philosophy of following Jesus that we never make the mistake of owning anything we don't, of never make the mistake of owning something we actually like? Um, uh, well, uh, no, because such a philosophy would distort um, the, the, the theology of creation and it would distort the image of God. Uh, God has made a good world full of his goodness, full of good things, and God delights in satisfying the desires of his creatures with good things. If we are miserly to ourselves, then we are misrepresenting God to ourselves, and we're likely to misrepresent God, therefore, to others as well. But if I'm generous and kind-hearted to myself... How can I tell when I'm just becoming self-indulgent and greedy? Who, who will rescue me from this body of sin? Lord, have mercy. If I'm generous with respect to myself, what will be the cost to others? How can I tell when I'm doing the right thing? And after all, I mean, just speaking very personally, I find it frighteningly easy to identify with poor old foolish Gehazi. I'm right there with you, buddy. I'm really embarrassed to say it, but I would have done the same thing. I mean, after all, those things weren't a big deal to Nainan. He had more of that stuff at home. He didn't know what to do with it all. And when else, when else in his entire life is somebody like Gehazi ever going to be able to lay, lay his hands on a talent of silver, 34 kilograms? Two talents, what was offered, 72 kilograms of silver and two sets of clothing. Unimaginable. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to escape the harsh disciplines of hand-to-mouth existence. It's, it's, that, it's, it's, it's being offered the $30 million lotto ticket that's already won. Um, it cost, and it cost Nainan nothing to part with those things. It meant everything to Gehazi to receive those things. What's the harm? And yet, somehow, Gehazi's desires led him down a terrible path to destruction a life lived out under the threat of leprosy 
uh, under the shadow of leprosy, not just for him, but for his descendants as well. Um, a, a terrible, terrible, terrible punishment, therefore obviously a profoundly evil crime. But where did you go wrong, Gehazi? I mean, apart from lying to both Naaman and, and your boss, that's not a good thing to do. Where did he go wrong? Well, we might perhaps um, say that Gehazi, oh, it's covetousness. And covetousness is so hard to spot, isn't it? When we desire something, we're thinking about that thing. We're not thinking about what's happening here. And we're consumed with covetousness. We don't even recognize it. That, maybe that was his problem, undetected covetousness. But actually, that's not the answer the text supplies. The text supplies a completely different and quite shocking answer as to where his problems began. And the answer is that his problem was that he was talking to himself. There it is, uh, verse 20, chapter 5. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, my master was too easy on Nainan, this Aramean. I will run after him and get something from him. Uh, Gehazi, instead of talking to himself, could have spoken to Elisha, the man of God, the prophet. He could have said, ah, I'm really struggling with this. You're just letting that stuff go out the door? Think of all the good things we could do with that for ministry. And besides, this was probably my one and only chance of ever being rich, of ever experiencing those good things. Why did you do that? But he didn't speak to Elisha. No, actually, he spoke to himself. And actually, I know that when I start talking to myself, I am just brilliant at talking myself into buying what I want. I'm, I'm brilliant at convincing myself of the acceptability of the justifiableness of this new acquisition, of this new shiny watch, even though I already have three, of this new shiny car, although I already have two. Somehow, somehow when I talk to myself, I'm right on my side. So, so let's... Let's, uh, let's not make Gehazi's mistake. Uh, let's uh, do two things. Uh, let's uh, remind ourselves of what the text says and then talk to the Lord. Is, is he not present by the Spirit? Can we not talk to him now? Um, so, so what does the text say? Well, the text calls us to reorient our lives so as to be thinking about heaven first, earth second. The text reminds us that it is ultimately unsafe. In fact, it is actually self-defeating to store up for ourselves treasures on earth. The text encourages us with the promise of eternal heavenly rewards that don't age, perish, tarnish, disappear, or get eaten by moths. The text teaches us that greediness is absolutely unacceptable for the disciples of Christ, just as generosity is absolutely essential for the disciples of Christ. Well, that's what the text has taught us. Um, how do we apply it? Let's, uh, let's turn to the man of God who is with us, the prophet. Let's turn to Jesus, for his spirit is amongst us. Let's talk to him. Let's pray. I'm going to pray. Um, I'm going to pray it slowly so that if, if you feel these words are good for you too, you can 
uh, you can uh, repeat them silently in your heart. Um, Dear Lord Jesus, uh, please rescue me. Please save me. Please forgive me. My desire, the decision of my will in my heart is to be changed, to be really changed by this text this morning. Father, I know that I can be greedy and sometimes I'm clever enough to hide my greed from both myself and also from others. But Lord Jesus, you see and you know my heart. Please help me to likewise see, know, and understand when I'm storing up treasures on earth in disobedience to you and your teaching. And in the name of Christ, I renounce greed. I can see it's completely unacceptable and it will distort my whole life. Please forgive me for my greed. And in the name of Christ, I ask for more of the Holy Spirit, for more of his help, in order that I might be generous whenever and wherever I'd be tempted to be greedy. And thank you, Father. You promised to hear our prayers through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.